You're listening to the Brandon Women's Bible Study Podcast, led by Leslie Ann Jones. Hey y'all, it's Leslie Ann. I'm so glad to have you here on the podcast this week. In Bible study on Sunday, we talked about 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22, and talked about the ways that Christ's victory gives us the example that we need to endure suffering well. To find out more about our Bible study in Brandon, Mississippi, visit lesliannjones.com. It's 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water." Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Father, I just thank you so much for your word, for your truth, for the hope and life that you have promised us through it, God. I pray that you would speak to us during this time, that you would enlighten us, that we may see and understand and honor you with our conversation, Lord, that you may be glorified here, that we may see you and know you better, God, and then that we may um, take that truth out into the world and live it out, that others may also see you and know you and may be saved. Lord, I just pray that you would be with us during this time and ask that you um, guide our conversation. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen. So this is a very old copy of The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Have any of you ever read this book? Okay. So Corey Ten Boom was, by all accounts, an ordinary woman who was a Christian in the Netherlands in the World War II era. She was a watchmaker by trade along with her father, and that was had been their family business. Um, but they were ordinary people who, before the war, before the Germans occupied the Netherlands, had made a reputation in their community for being good people. They helped people when they needed it. Her mother was known to carry food to families who couldn't afford to put food on the table. They took people in when they didn't have a place to stay. So they had this reputation of looking out for people and doing good. And all of that was fine until the Nazis moved in. And suddenly the things that they had always done, the things that they were known for, became not good anymore and bad, very bad, in the eyes of the government because they had always made a practice of helping those in need. And suddenly the people who were in need were those that the government was hunting down. And um, the Ten Boom family decided at that point to carry on doing the good that they had always done in the name of Christ, regardless of the consequences. So what they did in their home, which 
I found this on my parents' bookshelf back a few years ago. I don't know if any of them ever read it. I just randomly found it there, and I was like, hmm, I'm going to take that home. I had never read it. I had heard her story my whole life, but had never actually sat down and read the book. So I read it two or three years ago, and um, it's a beautiful story of faith lived out. But this is a diagram of their house, and um, what they did is that way up here, like the way it was built from the outside looking in, there was extra, well, from the outside, you couldn't tell that there was an extra hidden away space. They had architects come in and build this secret room in the house, which became the hiding place. And their family then became a stop, a place for Jews to hide on their way out of town and into safer places. Well, they did it for several years undetected until in 1944 someone turned on them. They were turned in and the whole family was arrested. But every single Jew who was in the house, which there were several of them, was tucked safely away in that hiding place and they were never found. Uh, Corey found out later through a letter sent into the prison and like this tiny little message that was hidden under the postage stamp. It said that all your watches were kept safe in the cabinet. And so all of the Jews who were hidden away in that tiny little cabinet made it to safety. But the whole family, of all the people who were arrested, most of them were eventually released. But Corey's father died. He was older at the time. He died about 10 days after they were arrested. Her sister Betsy, who was arrested with her as well, died in the concentration camp at Ravensbrück. And Corey also ended up eventually in the concentration at Ravensburg, but she was later released on a clerical error. She wasn't supposed to be released. She found out that just shortly after her release that all the other women her age were exterminated. So she wasn't supposed to be like a clerical error, right? But before she made it to the concentration camp, she spent some time that she was kind of shuffled around the prison system. And this is what she said. She was in solitary confinement because she had been sick and they didn't want her illness to spread throughout the whole prison. So they put her in solitary confinement to kind of contain it. And she was very ill. This, you know, the fever had her not being able to see straight. She was kind of hallucinating some stuff. But she had a Bible with her that had been smuggled in in the pocket of a coat. And as her health got better, she was able to read the scriptures. So this is what she said. I have been sustaining myself from those scriptures a verse at a time. Now, like a starving man, I gulped entire gospels at a reading, seeing whole the magnificent drama of salvation. And as I did, an incredible thought prickled the back of my neck. Was it possible that this, all of this that seemed so wasteful and so needless, this war, Shevingen prison, this very cell, none of it was unforeseen or accidental? Could it be part of the pattern first revealed in the Gospels? Hadn't Jesus, and here my reading became intent indeed, hadn't Jesus been defeated as utterly and unarguably as our little group and our small plans had been? But if the Gospels were truly the pattern of God's activity, then defeat was only the beginning. I would look around at the bare little cell and wonder what conceivable victory could come from a place like this. I think her story is a beautiful one because she faced a sort of suffering that we are unlikely to, thank the Lord. But she's faced it and she faced it well. And in the midst of all of that, while she's in solitary confinement in a prison for actually doing good things, she is able to say that defeat is only the beginning. And that, I think, is the same thing that Peter is getting at in this passage today. 
that just as Corey found comfort in the example of Christ while she was facing her own personal hell, really, on earth, then we can, too. That if it's not good, it's not the end. Defeat is only the beginning. And Christ's victory gives us the example that we need to endure should suffering come our way, just as it did for Corey. So, in these, uh, let's turn just to the first verse. We'll read 13 and kind of walk through this together. Okay, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Peter starts this section with kind of sounds like a rhetorical question. The obvious answer seems like no one, right? Nobody is going to hurt you if you do good things, but we know that's not true. Um, The way that he asks it seems to imply that that's the obvious answer. And maybe in a perfect world, that would be the case. But we are not living in a perfect world, right? In a perfect world, governments and masters and husbands never, ever abuse their authority. Christians are never, ever reviled for their faith. None of those things ever happen. But here, in this imperfect world that we live in, People do abuse their authority. Governments, masters, husbands, they all do at some point. And Christians are ridiculed and mocked in mild cases for their faith and in more severe cases like the one Corey was facing or other Christians in other parts of the world even today. um, They are martyred for their faith. So it's not always safe to be zealous for what is good. But it is worth it because Peter says in verse 14a that even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Which suffering to me honestly doesn't sound very much like blessing. Is that what you think of when you think of the word blessing? Does suffering come to mind? I don't think it comes to any of our minds really. But I think we do need to talk about this because we have a very American idea of what it means to be blessed and we need to push back against it a little bit especially now that we're coming up on Thanksgiving and everybody's going to start their you know on social media their hashtag blessed posts with their 30 days of gratitude which is not a bad thing to do it's a great thing to do but I think we need to redefine it in terms of what it means to be blessed by the Bible instead of what our culture tells us blessings should look like because our definition is far too small it's too narrow for what the bible calls blessing and it doesn't leave any room for believers who are maybe living in a different part of the world in poverty unsure of where their next meal is going to come from so are they any less blessed than we are are we more blessed than them can they still experience god's blessings And if we only define blessing by the physical, temporary things of this life, then are we missing the point of what God means when he says we will be blessed? So the things that we talk about are often the natural, immediate things. Health, good health is a blessing. Wealth, money in the bank, the ability to feed your family, a good job, a good home to live in, Um, a new car. God really blessed us with uh, a bonus this year, so we were able to fill in the blank. Just think about the way that we talk about it in conversation with each other, what we name as blessings. Um, A larger salary, 
a big happy family. What about those of us who struggle with infertility? Does that mean that they are less blessed, that they have less children? And so I I name all of these things not to make you feel bad about calling those things blessings because they certainly are. They are a form of blessing, but they're secondary, really, to the foundation of our blessing, which is eternal. So all of those things, they're temporary. They come and go, and they could be gone in a moment, right? You could lose your job. You could go to the doctor and get a bad report, and there went your health. Anything could happen, and all of those things can be stripped away in an instant. So the foundation of your faith has to be bigger than that. So when the Bible talks about blessing, it talks about our spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. Uh, Salvation and eternal heavenly inheritance, grace that is greater than all our sins, redemption and forgiveness, peace with God, unity with Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These are all the things that the Bible talks about when it talks about blessings. The community of the faithful, that's a blessing. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. And what does the rest of it say? Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. So when we talk about blessing, we need to make it our conversation bigger and name these primary things as the blessings that they are. Not that the other things aren't blessing, but that they're not the most important blessing that we have as believers. See, those things are good, but anybody can have those things. You don't have to be a believer to have good health or wealth or a new car, or a bonus, or a big happy family, or any of those things. But you do have to be a believer to experience the joy of salvation and the peace of Christ. So, for a biblical concept of blessing for the believer, then, it is bigger than what the world calls a blessing. And that's why Peter can say that even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're still blessed. You're not forgotten. It's not punishment. God's not looking down on you. There's nothing wrong with you. You haven't gotten something wrong. You are blessed. Now, maybe not in the way you expected, maybe not on the time frame that you were hoping for or in the way that you thought things would turn out, but you are still blessed. You're not being ignored. God has not forgotten you. This isn't happening because he took his eyes off of you. You will be blessed for it. Blessing is coming. And we know it because we trust the one who has promised it. He is faithful and he's good. And we can believe in him even when our circumstances are saying that we are not being very blessed right now. Or the opposite of what the world would call blessed. We know that God's word is true. So Peter goes on then and says, Have no fear of them, speaking of those who would persecute you for doing good, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. If suffering should come because you are doing good in the name of Christ, and that is the specific kind of suffering he's talking about here, not all suffering in the world, but specifically for the cause of Christ, you have two choices. You can focus on your fear, whether that is fear of rejection, fear of safety, fear of losing your job, for standing up for your faith, whatever it is, you can focus on the fear. Or you can focus on your Savior, and whichever one you focus on will become your motivation. It will inform all of your decisions and your actions from that point forward. 
So if you are worried about what might happen if you continue doing this Christianly thing that you've been doing that has drawn attention to you, unwanted negative attention somehow, if you think about the things that might happen, then you're going to stop doing that thing that might get you into trouble. But if you focus instead on your Savior, then you're going to keep on doing it because you know that it's worth it. You know that it is worth it. Why? Because he has done the same thing for us. He says, In your hearts, honor that Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, not if, but when, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So over the past few weeks, we've been talking a lot about good conduct and how we preach the gospel with our actions, that it speaks oftentimes louder than words. But now Peter's saying, okay, you need to back it up. Sometimes we might use that as an excuse not to speak, to let our lives preach the gospel if necessary, use words. Peter's saying it's necessary, but they've got to match. Your life and your words have to match. And when you speak, you must do it with gentleness and respect so that they can hear you. I stop listening when people are angry shouting at me. We must, when we speak, when we give a defense of the faith, we must do it in a kind and Christ-like honoring way. And remember how he responded when he was reviled and insulted? Did he do any of those things in return? Because I think that the kind of, we are unlikely to face the same kind of persecution that, say, Corey Tim Boom and her family did, or these Christians in first century Turkey, not Turkey, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, first-century Asia Minor, were facing. It's not the same. But Corey Tim Boom's world changed dramatically in the span of just a short period of years. And if things continue along the same way that they are going in this country, then it is likely that at some point in the span of our lifetimes, those of us who believe will suffer in some way for our faith. People already lose their jobs because their policies aren't inclusive enough. And so the longer, the more that Christian values are ridiculed and frowned upon by the powers that be in our culture, the harder it will be for those of us who believe the truth of the word and uphold those values to continue to do so. So we may not end up in a concentration camp for doing good, but it will not necessarily be easy for us to give a calm and reasonable defense for why we still believe this outdated notion today in the 21st century, why we still believe that the Bible is true and act as if we believe it's true. Um, people, we will be called to account for that. So when we live distinctively Christian lives then, and we make distinctively Christian choices for our families, because I think that's really what Peter's getting at when he talks about good conduct. He's not just saying, be a good, nice person. No, it's Christianly. It's 
markedly different than everyone else. People are going to notice. They're going to notice that we don't watch the same movies or do, let our kids do the same things or go the same places, that we don't listen to the same music or laugh at the same kind of jokes, or we choose joy instead of despair. They'll notice that. They'll notice when we had a chance to criticize someone and we offered encouragement instead. They will notice and pay attention when we offer grace because it is so rare in this often cutthroat world when we offer forgiveness and choose to forgive when what they really want is for us to hold a grudge. And so... If we choose to live our lives in this distinctively Christian way, people are going to notice over the course of time, and they might ask why. So we have to be ready for it. If you don't know why you believe what you believe, um, then you're not ready. And if you don't spend enough time in the Word doing that thing that Peter told us to do, to nourish ourselves on the pure spiritual milk, then you're going to be an infant who cannot yet speak properly when given the chance to make a defense of the faith. So being ready requires work on our parts, and that's what we're doing here. So pat on the back for um, doing what you can to make yourself ready and to grow in your knowledge of the Lord so that you can do these things. If we have done that, made it a practice to crave the pure spiritual milk, and we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good over and over and over again, then we will be ready, and we will be able to then share the gospel with gentleness and respect, not out of you know, a defensive spirit, but with humility, not sarcastically or with anger, not just shooting off a remark, um, but instead with love and with calmness and gentleness. We will not stoop to the level of those who hurl insults at Christians because there are those that do. Um, Instead, we will be better. We will rise above all of that nastiness and we will show them a better way and that way is the way of Christ. So our Christian lifestyles might call some to ask questions and it might spark curiosity from some which gives us a chance to share the gospel with them but in others it will spark outright hatred and that's what Peter gets at here when he says that when we are slandered those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame so let's talk for a minute about people who revile good behavior because this is It seems counterintuitive until you stop to think about it. For some, good choices and good behavior serve as an indictment for their own bad choices and bad behavior. So if they see somebody who's doing good, it makes them feel bad for doing bad, and and they don't want the conviction. So they want the good person to stop being good. So then they won't feel so bad about their bad choices, right? Does anybody like a goody two-shoes? Um, But it's just easier to carry on in your own sin when everybody else is doing it too, when there's nobody showing you an alternative way. So what usually happens? The group usually puts huge pressure on the goody two-shoes to conform. Be like us. Do this thing with us. It won't be so bad. 
you'll see. And then one of two things happens. The goody two-shoes gives in and then loses all their credibility and witness or whatever it was that they were doing. Or they grow a backbone and stand up and refuse to give in. And they eventually end up changing the people around them. Peter is saying that our way of life as believers should be so Christian, so Christ-like, that it convicts those who are around us when they see the choices that we are making and when they see in everything. Remember that call he gave to us way back in chapter 1 weeks ago? Be holy, for I am holy. If we truly live holy, set-apart lives and practice holiness in all areas of our life, if the choices that we make in our marriages and our relationships with our children and in parenting and at work, if we are good in all of those areas, it ought to be enough to show others that there's a better way and convince them that maybe the way that they've been doing it isn't best. And that's what he's saying here when he says that those who revile your good behavior, those who hate you, for being good, maybe put to shame. Put to shame, not so that they can just feel bad for themselves. Shame is not exactly a positive word, but shame that leads to repentance, that they might be changed, that they may know Christ. And this is the heart of the matter for us when we get to verse 17. He says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. What it all boils down to, everything that he has been saying over these past few weeks and what is so hard for us to swallow because I like to be comfortable. Do y'all like to be comfortable? But Peter says that the gospel is more important than our comfort, whether that is socially speaking, choosing Christian values may put us in some socially awkward positions, whether it's socially or within family or at work, we might end up suffering for our faith in some way, maybe mildly in comparison to what others have faced. But still, the gospel is more important than our comfort. So the question then is whether or not we believe that, or if we place our comfort or, ooh, I may not like it if I fill in the blank. If I said something or what will people think if we, is my child going to be the only one who doesn't own a cell phone? There are things, those are small little discomforts, um, but I see it in my children, the things that, they deal with because we make different choices for them. Our oldest went to a birthday party. This was a couple of years back. She went to a birthday party with a girl from the soccer team. It's like a spa party. They were doing manicures and facials and all this kind of stuff. But they were playing music at the party. And it was a particular, very popular female artist that I do not let our girls listen to because I don't think she's a good role model personally. And at the time that this album had come out in the music videos, I just thought, I don't want my daughters watching that and thinking that that's like thumbs up from me, <laughs> that we should behave in this way. 
And I had had this conversation with Micah about this particular album that had come out because everybody was listening to it. And I said, babe, I just think we can do better. Like, we, we can find better than that. How about some Lauren Daigle? So they were listening to the music at the birthday party, and they chose this song to play. And Micah said, I can't listen to that. My mom won't let me listen to that. And so then I felt terrible because she got home from the party. And then my reaction was like, oh, you didn't have to say that. Like, it's fine. You were at the party. Like, I wanted to let her just let it go. But she was like, no, you said it wasn't okay. So why would it be okay there but not? (laughs) I'm like, okay, you're right. You are better at this than I am. Because she's young enough that, like, she's starting to feel the discomfort a little bit. But, like, kids are... I don't know. They have this great freedom to just be themselves at that age. They just haven't experienced enough of the social awkwardness to try to avoid it yet. So I was proud of her in that instance. But as our children get older, it's only going to get worse. And that's just in parenting. So you know about all the choices that we make that make us different. There are plenty, and we will have to answer for those. Um, And maybe that's a mild form of suffering. I don't know. But it is hard to be different. It's hard to be different, but let's be different together. And, um, yeah, we have somehow bought into the notion, I think, when it comes to suffering and um, discomfort and avoiding those types of things, um, that God wants us to be happy. Well, maybe, or maybe that's not the most important thing to him. Maybe reaching the lost is more important. And maybe our happiness while we're here on earth isn't God's main goal. Maybe it's more important, maybe his goal is saving others and sanctifying us in the process. And maybe in our suffering He's accomplishing exactly that, whether or not we can see it now. So the encouragement for us is to let our lives preach the gospel with words and actions. And then to to ask yourself whether or not you are actively trying to influence those around you for the cause of Christ. Or whether you're just doing your own thing in your own zone going to avoid that because that would be uncomfortable and whether or not we really are preaching the gospel or we're just avoiding that altogether okay so we've got a little bit more time let's move on to this second part so the first section then in this i didn't say it out loud i divided into two sections the first one was if suffering should come and then the second section verses 18 through 22 remember the example of christ So in this section, Peter goes into great detail about, um, well, maybe not enough detail because it's not exactly clear, but he talks about how Christ also suffered, that he is an example of one who suffered, but who now sits in victory over all his enemies. So verse 18 says this, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I'm going to stop there. Um, Christ considered our salvation more important than his very own life, and he gave it all up, all of it. He left the halls of heaven. 
He left his glory there and he came to earth in order to suffer. That was why he came, was that he might suffer for us so that we may be then brought to the Father. It's a beautiful thing that he did for us. And he died once and for all. That's what Peter is saying, just once. An eternal, sufficient sacrifice for our sin. And now he lives in the Spirit. And Christ has done this thing for us. This is his example. This is how God's very own son lived while he was on earth. So why do we expect ours to be different? This is what Christ did. This is how he lived. Let's make the salvation of others more important than anything else. So are y'all ready for these fun verses about Noah and Okay, I have copies for you. They don't have all the answers. And I'm going to go ahead and apologize that, like, when I made the copies, um, the copy machine wasn't nice to me. I'll pass back there, too. It flips on the long edge, not the short edge. So when you flip it over, it's going to be upside down. But I'm sure that y'all can figure this out. Okay. So if you came here today thinking that I was going to clear up all of the questions about these verses, then I'm sorry, but you're going to be disappointed. Um, In the past several years, I have listened to two different, well-respected, well-educated Bible teachers preach this passage and come to two different conclusions. And so that wasn't very helpful. When I listened to one, I thought, yeah, that's good. And then I listened to the other one, I was like, well, you know what? That's pretty compelling, too. And so um, I am uncertain about the exact meaning here. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. I have studied. I have read commentaries. I have cross-referenced and looked up all the verses and prayed and meditated, and I still don't have answers. And I just want to be honest about that because I think sometimes we assume that people have all the answers and that, like, we're just not smart enough to figure it out. But this is what we're going to do. We are going to go over the five most common interpretations for these verses. They come from Wayne Grudem's, those copies that I handed out. They're from Wayne Grudem's commentary on 1 Peter. Um, And if... I did not copy the whole appendix because it was like 40 pages. But if you would like to read the whole thing, in three weeks I'll give you this commentary. And you can totally have at it if you are wanting to really wrestle with this some more. So we're going to go over those. And then we're just going to move on. Because when it comes to difficult texts in the Bible, this is what I generally do. I pray for discernment, first of all for the Lord to help me understand. And then I do my best to understand. So first that means reading and rereading and reading some more over and over again until at least I understand what the words say, even if I don't understand what the words mean, I at least know what they say. And then after all of that, I turn to the commentaries and see what the scholars think. And sometimes that works. And I'll walk away with the feeling that, okay, I've got a handle on this. That was unclear, but it's clear now. This is not one of those cases. And so um, when that happens, then I move to number three on that step of dealing with difficult texts, which is just to embrace the mystery and to know that as long as we are here on this earth, there will be things that we cannot see clearly or understand in all of its fullness. And it's okay. It is okay. I just do the best that I can and add it to my list of things to ask when I get to heaven.
Because we're going to have eternity. Surely we can run down Peter and say, what did you mean by these verses? Because I don't know. So with all of that said, let's read verses 19 and 20. And then we'll talk through some of this on the commentary. Okay. So uh, Christ has been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay, so on the second page of your handout, it goes over the different views of what these verses mean. The first one says that when Noah was building the ark, Christ in spirit, was preaching through Noah. He was in Noah preaching repentance and righteousness through him to unbelievers who were on the earth then but are now spirits in prison because they didn't repent because, you know, they died in the flood. So the judgment happened to them. And this view makes sense in a way because if you think about way back in First Peter chapter 1 when he talked about um, the Holy Spirit preaching through the prophets and speaking to them back then, this is kind of linking it to the Spirit of Christ was at work then. So this is an example of the Spirit of Christ, of Christ at work in the Old Testament. So there's view one. View number two, after Christ died, he went and preached to people in hell, offering them a second chance of salvation. I'm going to say that I don't like this idea. Like there are some that I don't know that are right, but I feel like this one is wrong. So he's just offering up the options of what people have thought over the years, not saying, I will say that Wayne Grudem goes with number one as the one that he finds convincing. Okay, so I don't like number two. Number three, after Christ died, he went and preached to people in hell proclaiming to them that he had triumphed over them and their condemnation was final. I also don't like this one because it seems mean. That's not a very theological reason, but it just doesn't seem very Christ-like. I beat you. No, that doesn't seem like something Jesus would do to people who are already in hell. Since, you know, he died to save people from going to hell. It just doesn't seem to match. So I don't like number three either. Number four, after Christ died, he proclaimed release to people who had repented just before they died in the flood and led them out of their imprisonment in purgatory into heaven. If you read the footnotes here, it says that this is a very Catholic view that is popular in the Catholic Church, but we're we're not into purgatory here in the Southern Baptist tradition, so I don't like that one either. That's all I'm going to say about that. So really, that leaves us with view number one and view number five. After Christ died... Or, after he rose, but before he ascended into heaven, he traveled to hell and proclaimed triumph over the fallen angels who had sinned by marrying human women before the flood. So, I know, it's complicated, right? It's so complicated, and it'll make your head hurt if you start thinking through all of those things. Now, the views that are most popular, and the two that I have heard preached, were the first one and the last one. Not necessarily that Christ went into hell, but, you know, if you read all those verses, which Jim Wilkin does fall into that view number five category, and she wrote our workbook. So if you read the, verse, read the verses that she gave us, the verses from Revelation and the others that referred to spirits and demons and Satan and angels, etc., being chained up and bound, then you can see how that interpretation also makes a bit of sense. But... 
like I said, when I listen to one, I'm like, hmm, maybe. I listen to the other one, I'm like, well, maybe that too. So, I'm just going to say this. Regardless of which one of them is correct, it doesn't change the main thrust of the passage, which is that Christ suffered, he died in the flesh, he has been made alive in the spirit, and he has saved people through that death and the resurrection. Noah is an example of God saving people in a time of judgment. And now Christ is sitting in victory over all his enemies. I am better at that big picture than I am about the details of what Peter may or may not have meant here. Because I think what he's trying to communicate is that Christ suffered just like you may be experiencing some kind of temporary suffering, but that was a temporary thing. Christ is not continually suffering. Like it happened, it was done, but it is over. That is in the past. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father. He is enthroned in heaven. And if you believe in him, your suffering is temporary too. And one day you're going to be right there with him. And that's what he's getting at, I believe, in these verses. So let's read quickly verses 21 through 22 and wrap things up, which 21 is also a fun verse about baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, God saving people through the waters of the flood, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So what is Peter saying here about baptism? saying that the act of being baptized is what saves you. No. No, he's not. He says here that it's not the it's not the getting in the water. It's not the removing of the dirt that saves you. He he adds that side note here. It's a symbol. He's drawing a parallel between the waters of judgment during the flood. And he's saying that just as God saved his people then, he is going to save his people now. And the water itself doesn't save us, but it is a, it's what it stands for. It's what baptism stands for that saves you. And what does baptism stand for? Did any of y'all grow up in churches where when they did baptism and they dipped somebody down, what do they say? Buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. That's what I grew up hearing over and over and over again. So to me, baptism has always been tied to this idea of burial and resurrection of judgment. And yet you are alive. You have passed through that judgment and into life with what? A good conscience. But where does the good conscience come from? Why can we stand before God with a good, pure conscience? Is it because of us? No. No, it's the righteousness of Christ that has been applied to us. We are saved through his death and his resurrection. And baptism stands for the spiritual cleansing, not the physical act itself. That's not what he's saying. It's our good conscience and right standing before God that God has granted to us through Christ. Who 
as it says here, is now resurrected. He has been resurrected, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now he's in heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Christ is victorious over all, over all, all things. All things are subject to him. Though he once suffered, he is now most assuredly blessed. I don't think any of us would argue with that. And he is sitting at the right hand of the Father with everything under his authority. Every single thing. The rulers on earth now, those who we are subject to now, everything, everything is under Christ's authority. And yeah, there's coming a day when his victory is going to be apparent to all. There are some who are carrying on living as if Christ is not victorious, as if he is not Lord. And now, for a little while, God is demonstrating his patience in the same way that he did during the time of Noah, allowing for a little while suffering and unjust treatment and bad things to happen that we must endure with patience and hope and joy even. Because we know that God is doing it. He, he doesn't waste our pain and he doesn't waste our suffering ever. He certainly didn't waste Corey Tim Booms. Think about the witness that she had because of the suffering. She traveled around the world post-World War II sharing this gospel of hope and love and joy and forgiveness and, and telling people about what Jesus had done for her and proclaiming the gospel, and she would not have had that platform if she had not gone through the suffering. It was the suffering that gave her the witness. And that is a hard truth, but it's a very real truth that sometimes God uses our suffering to accomplish something greater. And he does it so that some may be brought safely through and may come to know Jesus Christ and might also stand before him with us with a clean conscience, having repented of their sins and come to a saving knowledge of Christ. So Christ, our Savior, reigns with authority now. He is sovereign now. He is ruler over all now and in control. Everything else is in submission to him. He sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places, and someday we're going to join him there. So let that be your hope and your guide. Let that be your motivation and your certainty when uncertainty is swirling around you and when suffering and bad times for the cause of Christ come in whatever form it may take in our happy American lives. It may come and we need to be ready. And we need to remember that if it is not good, it is not the end. Do you remember what Corey Ten Boom said? Defeat is only the beginning. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word and for this example that you have given to us in Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would, God, that you would help us to live up to it. That we would be people who um, don't shy away from the truth, Lord, but who proclaim your gospel with gentleness and reverence and respect, honoring those who are around us and praying for them, hoping that our lives may you may use our lives in some way to lead the lost people around us to you, Lord, that we may be a witness who preaches the gospel both with our words and with our actions, Lord, that you may be glorified and that people's lives may be changed. 
Father, we ask that you help us to be your people who live with boldness and courage in this world, God, and that you would continue to help us read and understand your word, Lord, and that you would apply it and minister it to our hearts, that we may be yours and may be changed by it. And it's in your name that we pray these things. Amen.